Welcome to the number one place you should send anyone trying to get out of the rat race and build a little wealth. When you're building your portfolio, starting from the ground floor, you need something different that you never thought you'd have before. A rabbit in the hat called the Not Your Average Investor Show to inspire you, entertain you, and teach you how to grow your dough. Surrounded by a tribe with a vibe you've been seeking for. With people in your corner gonna make you really, really grow. But just how fast you'll grow, how big you'll go, you couldn't possibly know. Not at this point in time. But that's why we're here. Welcome to the Not Your Average Investor Show and Community, where we figured that most of us trying to get out of the rat race need a little bit of education and a lot of friends to help us understand complicated asset classes. And that's what we provide here with a focus on helping you get into one of the greatest long-term risk-adjusted asset classes in the history of investments, rental income properties. But don't hear from me. Join us right now to our live show, Already in Progress. Enjoy. We're officially live on Facebook for the Tuesday edition of the Not Your Average. Woo, little, little hair thing here. Yeah, of the like Not Your it. Average Investor Show. I am your host, Pablo Gonzalez. Today, we're talking about the top five ROI lies that the bad guys out there are trapping you when buying rental property investing. With me, as always, is the man that came up with this concept because he's got genius concepts because he's a because he's a he knows how to generate cash flows because he's a great co-host. I forget to say the reason I it's because I call him GC and because his name is Greg Cohen. Say hello, Greg. Hello, everybody. Fantastic to be with you. And and Pablo, might I say, I really love that Conan O'Brien hair thing you had going when you when you said you said that we were live. I, I think that needs to be a main staple. I don't know if you put less product in your hair today or whatnot, but boom, you brought it today. The California air just has my just has my hair just no oh, doing so good. Anyways, with us always too is our all-star community manager. We call her MTM because she brings us the moments that matter, and because her name is Madison the Magnificent. Say hello, Madison. Hello, everybody. Good to have you here, Madison. And uh, great to have the community here as always. We always this is a audience-driven show. So if you're watching on the podcast you're watching on YouTube. We love having you here, but we really, really love the people that make this time to join here and be part of the show. So if you want to be a part of that magic, go to nyais.com. Join us one of these days, just throw it on your calendar and you can show up and uh, either share lunch with us on the East Coast or if you're on the West Coast like me right now, a little late breakfast. I'm having a little coffee over here and uh, hang out with us and be part of what, GC? What are we about to get into? The roll call, baby. Re- 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 roll call. All right, let's go. Madison's already in the chat. Welcome, everybody, to the Not Your Average Investor Show. We got Danny Davies chiming in from Germany with a guten tag. We got Lee Bishop, the MVP of the Not Your Average Investor Show community, with a good afternoon, everybody. Nice to see the JWB family here. We got Tony D in the house, Anthony Dilla saying hi, everybody. We got our usual leadoff batter. Hitting cleanup today, John Henning saying good afternoon, all. We got Nadim Shah with his trademark, good morning, good afternoon, JWB family. Nadim, I'm out west with you too, so it's good morning for me, bud. We got Chris Gonzaga from the illustrious Hudson Valley, New York, saying great day to everyone. We got Marilyn Cotterman from Homa, Sasa, Florida. 
Home of the manatees, baby. She's she's saying good afternoon from the Gulf side of Florida where the manatee roam. You love it. I love it. We were just uh, I was hanging out with Jen and and Renee at uh, here in Santa Cruz, and we saw a picture of a of a manatee, so we put it on and tagged tagged Marilyn in the in the in the group. All right, we got the man everybody knows, Noah Rondari, who's also out here in California. He says hello, everyone. Greetings from California. We got our regular Rosalind Riley, who's also from. Marietta, California, wishing everybody good morning. We got Aaron O'Neill into the light. Aaron (laughs) O'Neill saying hello, everybody. We got Andy Harris from Hotlanta checking in with us as well. Rosalind's welcoming me back to Cali. Thank you, Rosalind. I love being here. We got Mark McDermott in the house. He's back. He says hello, everybody. We got Ken Moline, the patriarch. And Carolyn Moline, the matriarch of the first family of the Not Traverse Investor Show community. We salute you. salute you. We're trying to figure out if I can go hook up with them because I'm not too far from them right now. Can't believe you're just over here, over the hill from us, Paula. That's right. We're in Santa Cruz. And we got Mary Rockoff. Mary's back. Good to have you. Good morning to all. And uh, Nadim, I am currently in Santa Cruz right now, headed to Redwood City for a conference that I'm speaking at all about community where I get to talk about this thing that we have here, the Not Your Average Investor Show and how we did it all. So you guys have all changed my life because I get to go on these like speaking circuits talking about how to build community for clients. Thanks to what we've done here. Aaron, I see you. You are correct. You're still waiting for a new nickname. My bandwidth right now is very low and Greg really likes Into the Light. So, you know, you're going to have to fight him for it. Yeah, I, I I think it's fitting. I like it. I mean, but we can we can go back to the drawing board. It's a tough crowd around here. If the nickname isn't up to par, we we got to go back to the drawing it's board. It's so hard. We'll it's no so nickname behind. And we got Drew Barnhill, the ringmaster of the Natural Average Investor Show community. That one sticks. Marilyn's already got a and GC. She says, I just received an invoice for a termite bait system on my one-year-old JWB rental. Curious if most renew this service. Pros and cons. You know, Marilyn, I'm glad you're asking that question. You know, that's not something that I'm going to be able to give you a great answer on, but I know our portfolio managers will. It's not something I've really looked into in, in a little bit of time. So let me just direct you to the people who are best fit to answer your question. Reach out to your portfolio manager and we'll get that answer for you here quickly. And now on to the main event. GC got on this call and said, this show's going to crush it to me this morning. He is so fired up about this. We're here to talk about the top five ROI lies. I'm frankly a little a little confused why this has taken so long because you've always been fired up about GC. Why is this show so important? Well, I feel like people, you know, a lot of times we've talked about this double standard in the asset classes that people choose to put their money in. And I feel like real estate gets the shaft a lot. I feel like the downsides of real estate are sensationalized to a degree that it's not that you just don't see in the other asset classes. And the upsides of rental properties are really minimized whereas in other asset classes, you know, they they certainly talk a good game. So like for example, when we talk about real estate, we actually have five profit centers in real estate that pay you five ways in the stock market. You really generally have one way, maybe two. But if you ask the the common investor on the street, you know, they'll say that you know, the stock market is the way to go in terms of, of return on investment. And then on the other side, right, we talk about how the downside of real estate, while everybody right now is concerned, is there a correction? Is there a crash? You're hearing articles out there that are saying we're already in a full-blown correction, which doesn't make any sense to me. But all the while in the stock market, we actually are in a bear market. We actually have seen values in the S&P drop, you know, close to 20% from the recent peak. So it's like, 
you're seeing all of this chatter. So you, there's this double standard. Well, so I've talked a lot about that and I'm very passionate about that. I wish people could just objectively look at this asset class versus another asset class and, and make the right decision. I'm very passionate about that. But we also have this double standard or this, I don't know, trickiness, if I'm putting it in, in my best, most positive terms, trickiness that even in our own rental property space, that some providers use an extreme amount of luxury when describing what their returns on investment are. And it's just, it's just not flat out based in reality. And I feel like if people can understand these tricks, these, you know, some of these are flat out lies and, and these other methods that these other providers use to inflate their returns on investment and inflate all five profit centers. If they can learn those, if they can look, learn what to look for, then they are going to be able to make better decisions with their money. They are going to be more successful when it comes to their investments. They are going to have more passive income in their future, which I just think helps family units. It helps communities. It helps kids learn better in school. So I really am passionate about just flat out telling the truth. I've been around this game for 17 years now. I see how all the other providers, you know, present their returns on investment. And, you know, it's just time to call a spade a spade. So I spent some time, did that, and I'm really excited to share with, with you guys. Tricksters, you are on notice. You see, I love, you know, you have, you have always, from the moment I've met you, you have been an evangelist for this asset class. And, you know, and what you are describing right now, you have kind of two jobs. You have the evangelism of this asset class versus other asset classes. And then you have the other piece that I think really is a little is a little harder, right? Because at the end of the day, you, the other piece is your evangelism of the right way to do it in this asset class. And I don't know which one is which one fires you up more because I know you're super fired up about this idea that turnkey rental properties, rental property investing is the best risk adjusted rate of return. And it and it's both sides of the equation fit into that, right? It fits into the fact that this asset is better, but it's only better if you do it the right way. And at the end of the day, you know, we'd be lying if we said that the real estate investor, give me your money and I'm going to give you some money back person, the the typical archetype we deal with doesn't have a blemish on their on their on their reputation and that's why people have been so turned off to this asset class and I find myself when I'm trying to like tell everybody about how wonderful this thing that we all got going on here as not your average investors is, I find myself having to help them unlearn a lot of past kind of like burns, right? Like I I I, I equate it to my business, right? I do marketing strategy and, and implementation in a completely different way. And you're the one that made me learn this, right? It's this idea that what attracts what attracts you to it, everybody, you know, like, yes, businesses need marketing, but it's this idea that you're giving me something different, not the same old thing that everybody else has has paid that made it make sense for you. I think you're doing the same thing and you do it really, really well. So I'm pumped that we're getting into this. Are you ready to get into the top five or do you have a take on what I just said? Let's jump right in, man. Let's jump right in, man. You've been working on this late night. Top five ROI lies. How about for for a a headline there? RO lies. (laughs) All right. Number one is maintenance and vacancy costs. Number two is tenant placement fees. Number three is interest rates, financing terms, and closing costs. Number four is selling, holding, and closing costs. And number five is home 
price appreciation. GC, when you look at these, is this in order? Is this just a list in no particular order? Can you give us kind of a, a rundown of what made you come up with all the stuff? Yeah, I, I listed it from one to five. One being, let's call maybe the the least. All of these are extremely impactful for your return on investment, by the way. But I went in terms of least impact to the highest impact. So starting with maintenance and vacancy costs, we know that that's the biggest pain point for investors, right? That's what you don't want to have maintenance and vacancy costs. And we'll kind of go through the, you know, how that affects returns, tenant placement fees. Again, a very common thing for people just to forget about that it's a part of your investment and so on and so forth. You can see interest rates, financing terms, and closing costs. That's where we're starting to talk about the debt. And that really has an impact, especially when you're holding on to an asset for 10 years or 20 years. Selling, holding, and closing costs. Another thing that I just, I look at so many of these evaluations, I see very few providers, including it. And then home price appreciation. You know, it's all of a sudden now, every single market out there is, you know, appreciating at 5% a year, 7% a year. And that's just, it's just not accurate. So we're going to, we're going to debunk a lot of these myths. And I actually now in what I did was I actually went and looked at other providers evaluations that are, that are actively promoting properties right now. And I went and I said, okay, let me zero in on what they are not telling the truth with. Got it. Got it. All right, man. So how did you find the other providers sheets? Like, how did you, did you do a little like a uh, investigation thing? Do they just have these things online? How did, how, how, how'd you get the data to, to compare this? Interesting. Actually, I, I went and I just did some Google searches because I wanted to get the most accurate up-to-date evaluations. And uh, you know, I didn't want to like hit up my buddies and be like, hey, send me an email so I can, <laughs> so I can torch it. <laughs> so I just went to Google and you know, what I found is... <laughs> so, but, so I went to Google and I just put in you know, Cleveland turnkey rental properties or other markets turnkey rental properties. Surprisingly, it's really hard to get an evaluation where it actually shows how they calculate returns. I think this is also a part of their strategy to make sure that they, you know, don't have to show you how how they get there because a lot of their calculations don't make sense. So it's it's pretty hard unless you put your information in. Cool thing for us though, anybody who wants to look at our evaluations, they can just go to jwbinventory.com. You get the exact spreadsheet. You can see how all these numbers are calculated. I think that also kind of reinforces this transparency, which I, I'm so passionate about. And you know, it's easy to hide in the shadows and maybe make a few, you know, half truths on your evaluations when you don't actually ha actually have to show how these formulas are calculated. Makes a lot of sense, man. That's why we're always evangelizing that jwbinventory.com. You can use the spreadsheet for yourself. You can compare it to other things and you can see current inventory of, of what's going on. All right. You see, I just got to call out. I love, this is, <laughs> since I'm in this like community speaking thing, right? Like, we have the show going on. If you're listening on the podcast, you're getting this information. But what's happening in the chat is a whole bunch of advice around termite control and people giving their like real life examples of what to do. And that's that turns into its own thing. And I think it's wonderful, right? So I, I really appreciate the wisdom of the crowd here, giving Marilyn some advice. We got Ken in here and Lee and Nadim and, and everybody giving it, giving their all real life examples. So, you know, this show is what we teach you and also what you have to teach each other. And I'm all in on it. All right, GC, let's dive right into maintenance. You said one through five, 
uh, five being the most impactful, this one being this one being the least, but they're all pretty impactful, right? So we're gonna go in ascending order. You're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna stay with us here till the end. So all right, maintenance and vacancy costs. Talk me through well, it, buddy. And I should point out that even though it was challenging and it is challenging for all of you to get actual evaluations unless you kind of have detailed conversations with providers, we have we have a relationship with a few of the providers out there. So what this allowed me to do is to actually look at their evaluations. And that's why I think this call is so so crucial. We're going to get a little bit more granular because I want to show you where to look on their evaluation so that you can say the next time you're thinking about investing in a rental property, does that make sense? Or does that just not make any sense at all? So we're going to start with maintenance and vacancy costs. Here's a new one, a new way to sort of tell maybe a half truth that I hadn't even seen before I did this deep dive. So this, this top box here, right? It talks about maintenance costs in two different forms. Pablo, have you ever heard me differentiate between normal year maintenance or move out year maintenance? I have not heard you differentiate between those two things. I had never seen that differentiated before as well. But this provider actually breaks out normal year maintenance and move out year maintenance. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So they said that there's 15% maintenance on the move out and 4% maintenance on the normal year. Why do you think they would do that? How do you think that that would help them if they said that, that they broke it out like that? Oof, man, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time just understanding this. I would assume that this lets them hide turnover costs. I don't know, man. I'm confused. I'm really confused about what this means. Well, the first thing, the first thing that it would mean to me is, listen, if, if I know that my sales team is going to get asked about maintenance costs, all of the time. It's one of the first questions that investors ask when they're thinking about buying rental properties. Because maintenance costs are such a pain point for investors, if I, if my sales team was now equipped with a way to say, oh yeah, our maintenance cost is 4%, then maybe I could just break out normal year maintenance and only quote that one versus what the reality of maintenance costs are. So this is a way for somebody to, to quote, oh, geez, yeah, our we really have 4% maintenance costs. You didn't actually ask us what your move out year maintenance was, right? So it's a tricky way to, to be able to relate a lower maintenance cost for your sales team. Okay. All right. Yeah, I get it. So it's a way to position your maintenance costs as, as lower than it, than it really is. But isn't, isn't, a normal year maintenance of 4%, is that high? Is that lower than than what people are normally expecting? And that's why they're trying to say four and then hit you with a 15 on the move out year? This is so low. So this is a renovated property. This is so low. I, I happen to know that this number is not even accurate, 4%. I happen to know it because mm-hmm. um, I know exactly how they calculate maintenance, which is not accurate. But even if it, even if it was accurate, it is so low. So like industry standard, Many people will quote somewhere around maybe 7% for maintenance costs, right? JWB actually tracks it. We're the only one I know who actually tracks it. And we're at 7.5%, which is just like so good. So if you can actually, I would challenge anybody out there to actually be able to back up anything around 7.5% for maintenance costs. You're just not going to see it, right? So to be able to quote 4%, you take something that you're really bad at (laughs) for maintenance costs and you make it sound incredibly good, better than the, the competition, right? Somebody who's in the sales process for this organization would leave and, and they would be told that their maintenance cost for their property is 4%. Whereas in JWB, we actually track it at 7.5% for us and, and, and that 4% number is not even real. So somebody might leave and think, oh, well, JWB's properties, more maintenance costs. Maybe I won't go with them, which is just not, not true. 
Got it. Got it. So you are positioning, you are positioning a number inside a prospect's mind that is lower than the expectation based on a technicality so that you can sell them on that thing is essentially what's happening here, right? Yeah. And this is the first time I mean, I've been investing for 17 years. I, I know how all the REITs and the the private placement funds represent their maintenance costs. First time I've ever heard it broken out for move out your maintenance and normal year maintenance. It's not okay. That. All right. So number one, ROI lie is maintenance and vacancy costs. Here's a provocative way of doing it is that they're going to quote you a super low normal year maintenance and then quote a move out your maintenance and 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 give it to you that way. There's right? more to that one. There's more to okay. that one. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, just getting started there, brother. Just getting All right, started. Bro. All right, but Takeaway here is whenever somebody asks you or quotes you a maintenance percentage, ask them to back it up. You're going to be disappointed if you go with somebody else other than JWB. Ask them to back it up because they just don't have the data. So, but there's more than that. So the timing of when these maintenance issues or these maintenance costs and when these vacancy costs, the timing of when they reflected on their evaluations has a big impact. Right. If you delay showing that there's a vacancy cost, like we see in the bottom picture here, you see year one, it's zero, two, zero, year three, zero, year four is zero. What do you think that does to your cash flow? Compresses it. Well, your cash flows would actually be higher if they're not oh. showing that vacancy cost as an expense. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So everybody right now is knowing the cash flows are diminishing. They're all in an arms race, really, to like, how can I beef up my, you know, cash flows in the in the wake of diminishing cash flows? And they're saying, what can I do to get tricky to show that my cash flows are still high? Well, let me say that there's no vacancy cost in year one, year two, year three, or year four. And then in year five, we'll just say that there's only vacancy, you know, in the fifth year. It's another tricky way to do this. Typically what you do and this is just industry standard, you put a vacancy percentage in, this is what JWB does, and you reflect that every year. And it, is, it averages out. So this is another tricky way to artificially inflate cash flows. Mm, got it. Got it. The cash flows, which is what everybody kind of seems to gravitate towards. If you can pump them up a little bit with a technicality and just have show, all right, first couple of years is this, then you're likely to see that and think it's a much more attractive um, yep. investment. And then the same thing for maintenance and repairs at the bottom. It's it's that 4% number I don't trust. I know that it's not accurate for this provider because I know them. But even if I did, what they what breaking it out between 4% and 15% allows you to do is to, again, limit the cost in year one, two, three, four. Because the only thing that matters for these providers out here is what cash flow number can they reflect year one for you? So this is another way to... Just say that there's four percent of maintenance. Oh no, you know what? They actually say zero maintenance in year one. Oh, mm. So it's mm. zero for year one. So they're art. They're artificially, you know, increasing their their cash flows, especially for the first four years. And they say that you only have, you know, sixteen hundred dollars of turn cost in year five, which is also artificially low. Okay. All right. Interesting, man. So. All right, that's that's maintenance and vacancy costs. You got anything else more on maintenance and vacancy? No, but that's that's the least impactful one that I found out of all of this too. <laughs> I know. I know. All right, so see what I'm dealing with here. I see, I see why you're so perturbed. I'm so, <laughs> I'm sorry that you have to go through this, GC. I'm glad we got you on our team. Okay, so breaking out, moving, and normal your maintenance is one way to like peg you to a lower number. 
Also, breaking that out makes the cash flow look higher, which is going to make you overvalue cash flow because we're naturally intended to like see that. And did I miss any other speaking point there on, on this thing? No, nah, man, we're good. That's it. All right. That was DEF CON 1. We're moving up to DEF CON 2. <laughs> tenant placement fees. GC, what do we need to see about tenant placement fees? You know, Pablo, you, you own three rental properties. When you have a home that's rented, is there a certain cost that comes along with that typically? A home that's rented is a property management fee. Yeah, uh, well, when they actually rent it out. You've received these from JWB. When they when they put a new person into the house? Yeah. Well, I haven't, I'm about to go through my first turn, so I haven't gone through a GC. Well, but when you purchase the home, you might not remember this, but when you purchase the home, everybody gets charged a tenant placement fee. Okay, that's, all right. I mean, don't, don't forget that you're talking to the most trusting investor that you have here, right? Like, <laughs> don't, don't, don't quiz me on the details of my contract here, bro. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. I'll, you know what? I know more about the investment for you that you just, that you have anyway. So I'll, I'll help. I'll supplement here. So yeah, I, just, I, just, <laughs> I just trust in genius concepts over here. You know what I mean? I got you. When Pablo purchased his investment properties, you know, the home is rented out and there's a tenant placement fee that is charged. The entire property management business model is made up of tenant placement fees, property management fees, and then lease renewal fees. Those are the three main sources of income for a property management company. When we buy property management companies that we do at JWB, we've purchased four so far. I get to see all of their books. And 25 to 50% of their books, of their revenue comes from tenant placement fees. So this is like the way that the business model runs. And when you are a turnkey provider like this provider, which is a different one than I just chose, I wanted to space it out a little bit. I also know them very well. They, of course, charge tenant placement fees when the home gets rented that they sell. However, if you look on their evaluation right here, you do not see a tenant placement fee anywhere. Okay. You'll see property management right there. And so the way that you would calculate this is you'd take that $2,084 that they're saying in year one when the home is actually rented, you divide that by $2,640, which is the scheduled income. And I think I did this last night. I think it comes out to about 8% if I'm. If I'm remembering correctly, or oh, yeah, it comes out to 8%. So they're saying that you can get this home rented and they're going to find a property manager out there who's going to charge you 8% without charging you a tenant placement fee. It's not accurate. I know this for a fact because this provider asked us to sell our houses to them, which we did not do. But if we had said yes, we would have been charging a tenant placement fee, just like we charged Pablo, just like we charge every client because that's the normal way of doing things. So this is just flat out inaccurate. That right there is what I call a golden nugget that we're going to clip out and post on the JWB YouTube channel. If you're on YouTube, check it out. And while you're at it, you may have noticed that this is being done live in front of an audience. If you want to be part of the show, Go to nyais.com, that's Not Your Average Investor Show, nyais.com, register, and join us on a Tuesday or Thursday at 12.30 Eastern. Trust me, it's as fun as it sounds. Now let's get it back to me and GC kicking it with our Not Your Average Investor homies. Got it. So you said a couple of things here. I don't want to gloss over the idea that 
you purchase property management companies. So you see this stuff when you are buying the property management company, you look at the revenue models, you understand that most property management companies make their money mostly on tenant placement fees. And therefore, it being omitted is a cardinal sin of trickstery, right? So I think that's the first thing. It's we need to ask always about where are the tenant placement fees because there's no property management company on earth that operates without it, right? I've yet to see it as a, as a successful property management company. I've yet to see some some company not charge a tenant placement fee. And I've seen a lot of them and I purchased a number of them too. So, Got it. Got it. Okay. So then what ends up happening is that you also mentioned a couple of things here, right? Like they are basically telling you your property management is only going to cost 8%, which seems low, right? Isn't JWB 10%? Yeah. So this company asked us to allow them to sell our properties, which we said no to. But if we had said yes, we would have been charging 10%. So again, this is inaccurate. Yeah. I'm correct. sure that they have some provider out there who is the low cost, cheap property management company that probably only signs one year leases and probably does it for 8%. So I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt there. But you know, I'm sure that there are some property management companies that they would refer to that would charge 10%, which would mean this was inaccurate. So, so first ROI busting myth when it comes to DEF CON 2 tenant placement fees is find out where the tenant placement fees are because they definitely exist. And second is take your property management fees divided by the gross operating income so that you can get a percentage number. And if it's not somewhere between like eight to 10%, you know, like, or or closer to like 9% ish, at least they're messing with you in some way, right? Like there is no like 7% property management. You know, I I wouldn't go so far as to say there's no property management at 7%. I, you know, I don't know. I'm sure that there's always a race to the bottom for, for some, you know, low cost providers out there. So I wouldn't say if you had property management fees of 7%, that that is impossible, but you got to realize what this provider is. This provider is not vertically integrated. This provider is basically a middleman where they just try to contract with companies like JWB or anybody else who has inventory, and then they just make their money on the sale of the property, but they have no influence on the property management. So they are incentivized to keep things off of their analysis because it's going to help them sell better. And then when the home is actually managed by whatever property management company they would refer their people to, right, th- this company that sold the house is no longer on the hook for returns. So that's the core of it. You know, This is not a vertically integrated company that we're looking at. They have no accountability for return on investment. So they're incentivized to f- forget things that they know are going to be costs for their owners. Got it. So Carrie Kinsolving, that's a surprisingly easy name to pronounce, and yet it was hard to read. All right. She's asking, or he, I'm sorry, Carrie, I I don't want to mess up genders out here. So Carrie's asking, 10% of the tenant placement fee, question mark, is that 10% of annual income, monthly income, or what? So I think Carrie's asking, you know, we're saying 10% and we're saying different things and we're talking about tenant placement fees. Why don't you just explain a little bit more, break that out for Carrie? Yeah, Carrie, thank you so much for that question. Sometimes I get on my soapbox and throw numbers around. So generally speaking, you're going to see property management fees as 10% of the expected gross rental income. Okay. That's what we have at JWB, 10% of the gross rents that are expected to be collected. And on top of that, when your home gets rented, 
the property management company also charges a tenant placement fee. And that's for the, the act of putting a qualified resident in your home. And that generally is around one month of a fee. So if the rent for that home is $1,500, that would be a $1,500 tenant placement fee. And that would be in addition to the rents that would be collected, excuse me, the property management fees that would be earned on the rents collected. There you go. There you go. And uh, Miguel Angel is saying from Spain, who has properties here in the US, is saying he used to have a PM that charged him only 7%, but the trick is always overcharging and maintenance, right? So like, I guess there is a fair question of the lower, the further away it gets from that 10% benchmark on property management fee, the more that they're going to have to, like you said, it's a race to the bottom. So they're going to play a shell game and add it into other fees, such as upcharging maintenance requests, such as a higher than normal tenant placement fee, stuff like that, right? You who has seen the guts of many property management companies. 100%. 100%. Let's just face it. Big picture, property management is not an incredibly lucrative business model if that's all you do. It's it's not an incredibly lucrative business model. I mean, that's why they have to charge so much for tenant placement fees. And that's why they, they sign one-year leases because they need to get those often in order for property management companies to survive and potentially thrive. I mean, most property management companies don't have 4,700 4, homes under management like JWB does. They might have 20 or 40 or maybe a hundred. So when you, when you are operating that type of a business and you have overhead to support, right, you have to find the money somewhere. And usually they find it in tenant placement fees, right? And that's why, again, they, they, that model, if all you do is have a property management company, that doesn't sell houses, that isn't accountable to returns on investment like JWB is. So if, if all you do is just manage properties, you got to find the profits somewhere. And a lot of that is intended placement fees, which leads to shorter resident stays because you sign shorter leases so that you can get more of those tenant placement fees over time. Mm. What I'm starting to hear, GC, is that when you get away from the vertically integrated model that JWB has, there starts to be these pockets of places where somebody who's trying to make their extra cut for their particular business model will stash a little bit of information that you don't see or exaggerate or you know like underestimate information because since they're not responsible for it, you can do that because they're going to be like in and out or they can blame it on somebody else, right? Is that kind of exactly. what's happening? A hundred percent. I thought Miguel Angel's point about maintenance costs is a fantastic point. That is a very common place for people to maybe charge a little bit less on the on the management fee, but but charge you a commission basically every time that you have a maintenance item. Right to me, that just goes away. Your goals aren't aligned. If JWB as a property management company would make more money when you had more maintenance costs, that we wouldn't be winning together. But the vast majority of property management companies are incentivized for you to have more maintenance items. They make a commission every time you have a maintenance item. It might be 10% or 15% of a markup every time you have a maintenance item. So that's, that's a really great point. I'm, I'm so glad you, you pointed that one out, Miguel Angel. Yeah, buddy. All right. Denny Davis is also saying, he's talking to me here, Denny. I appreciate it, buddy. Pablo, JWB's 8 to 10% property management fee more than pays for itself in reduced maintenance costs due to economies of scale with contractors. I am sure my turnovers would cost me double if I pursued maintenance contractors myself. Taking that into consideration, the property management fee pays for itself over time. Fair. It's awesome, Denny. You're the man. Appreciate 
those comments mean so, so much to me. In fact, you know, from time to time from folks on the show, just share comments like that. We actually snip those out of the comments and we share that with our team and our team meeting on Tuesday. So I just want you to know that those comments go far and wide. I just super appreciate your support, Danny. Awesome, man. So tenant placement fees is always look for the tenant placement fee. Then you're going to want to reverse engineer the property management cost to divide it by the gross operating income to figure out the percentage. The lower that thing is, the higher the chance that in a non-vertically integrated scenario, they are hiding things somewhere. Is there another big takeaway from DEFCON 2, GC? In future, it shouldn't only be year one that you have a tenant placement fee. Right. Generally, you're building out a 10-year schedule of your returns over a 10-year hold. So there should be multiple years where they should see a new tenant placement fee. Right. So if you're signing one-year leases, you're probably having a new tenant placement fee maybe every two years, kind of being generous there. So you should see that repeatedly. You should see it in year one. You should probably see it in year three and year five and year seven right? and so on. JWB, we sign long-term leases. And our average resident stays 54 months, four and a half years. So we have one in year one, and we also have one in year four, and then so on and so forth. Got it. Are we going to be talking about? Uh, we'll just keep going here. I, I, I assume that I assume that we're talking about renewals at some point, right? No, I didn't. I didn't think that was one of the most impactful things. Okay. So then, so then, just reverse engineering into the numbers. If you're trying to figure out how often you should have the tenant placement fee, you should always ask your property manager, what is your average turnover? You know, like what is your average length of stay is the other question that you need to ask if you're going to reverse engineer these numbers as well, which I'm sure you're going to tell me that most PMs can't even give you that number. There you go. But ask them anyways. And just like ask them these tough questions that they can't get you answers. That's probably telling you all you need to know. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. We're moving up to Dexcon 3 of Trickstery in ROI right here. We're moving into the interest rates, financing terms, closing costs. GC, what do I need to know about this nerdery? Yeah. So this is straight off of an evaluation. Again, different provider out there. And I went to go and look at their 30% returns or whatever they were advertising for their properties. And what do you know? You look at their mortgage rate calculation and it's like straight from like, you know, March of, you know, 2021. <laughs> You know, they're expecting that they can get their clients a 4.75% interest rate with 20% down, which just flat out does not exist uh, unless you are spending thousands and thousands of dollars of buying the rate down. I don't even know if you get it down that low, to be quite honest, but it just doesn't exist. And it's certainly not conservative. And I think that the, the point here is that when you're starting to mess with evaluations and go so aggressive on things like interest rate, even down payment, one slight misstep can affect 50, 100, $150 a month of cash flow and can affect it from going cash flow positive to cash flow negative very, very quickly. Right. And that's why these other providers, when they're saying, oh, geez, we're $200 a month of cash flow, I'm like, it's just not, let, let me see, let me see how you got there. You know, let me see how you got there. And a lot of times it's something like this, right? 4.75% is just not accurate. Interest rates are the highest that they've been in a, in a very long time, right? They, they have gone back up even since, you know, the last month when we saw a little bit of relief, they've, they've gone back up a little bit again. So it's just, it's just inaccurate. I, I would challenge this provider to, to show me any client that has gone under contract recently who, who actually is locked in at these types of rates. 
Got it. So if you're going to catch a trickster in this one, you're looking at you're looking at your actual interest rate inside the calculation. You're looking at the percentage down payment and the loan term, and you are asking them to verify it with a bank. Are you calling around to see if that's true? Right. Like I feel like one of the things that you talked about this at twenty percent, you generally don't get as low an interest rate as you do at twenty five or thirty percent. Right. So how do you how does one verify this stuff? Well, you should, you know, you'll verify it one way or another. If you go under contract with a client like this, or you go and you get approved with a, with a company like this, the next step is for that, that lender to actually lock in your interest rate. Okay. And so what typically happens is you've just, you've gone through the process of building up your trust for this other provider out there. You've gone through the process of choosing the property. You got all excited about these 30% returns that they were highlighting were coming your way. And then you just have the sequence of poor moments of truth is what happens. And one of the first poor moments of truth is you look at the interest rate that you were expecting, and then you look at the one that gets quoted or that you get locked in at, which probably happens a week after you go under contract. And it might, I mean, on our evaluations, we expect 6% interest rate. And that's with a 30% down payment. If I was quoting 20% down, I would need to jack up that interest rate even higher because the less you put down, the more bank, the more risk the bank takes and the higher that they charge an interest rate. So this is just completely not accurate. And so that's one of the first moments of truth, poor moments of truth that you have as a client of another provider is that interest rate's way off. And then you call them up and you're like, hey, what did you what did you tell me? And they're like, oh, well, you know what? We had no idea of what the interest rate market was going to be. We took our best guess. I'm sorry. And now you're already locked into the property and you have a poor taste in your mouth. At this point with most providers, have you given the money? Is there is it too late to back out when you get the first like really terrible taste in your mouth? Yeah. You put a binder deposit down that's non-refundable. So you're mm-hmm. locked in. They've taken your money. Okay. Many times. I won't say I won't say every time. You sometimes you can get approved. And actually get, you know, have an idea of what your interest rate will be. So you'll have some sense of it. But -hmm. the reality is a bank can't actually lock your rate until you have a contract signed. Yeah. So many times people are, they're already roped in. They put the binder deposit down. They maybe didn't ask the question on the initial call they had with their lender. They thought it was going to be exactly what they saw in the evaluation. And now they've got money down. And now there's that poor moment of truth. Yeah. you got to walk away from like five grand plus the the rapport building that you've done essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. I should also point out here, I put closing costs here. I'm talking about buyer's closing costs, like closing costs when you purchase. It's just notorious. These providers out here don't include closing costs on your purchase. And that has a big effect because that determines your return on your investment. That That is a cost. I've never bought a property without paying closing costs. Right? Everybody knows there's some closing costs to pay. So you just don't see those on the evaluations. And it, again, it's it's just not, it's not a true, it's not true. Got it. So to catch a level three trickster, then you got to number one, verify the interest rate, the down payment percentage and the term on the sheet, right? Like make sure that that's all there. Then perhaps there is a phone call you can make to ask yourself, are these, or ask somebody or ask a friend, are these realistic expectations. Maybe you can talk to your banker. They can give you kind of an opinion. Another is be a part of a community like this, the Not Your Average Investor Show, where you can ask people who have recently bought something if this is realistic. And then last but not least is just to also be looking for the closing costs 
being part of the down payment and the things that you have, they all need to be there and the numbers need to make sense. Absolutely. All right. Let's ratchet it up a bit. Let's go to DEF CON 4 Trickstery. We got selling, holding, and closing costs. GC, what do we need to know about this? Yeah, we're starting to get into some stuff that's really, really impactful here. So we got to understand what we're trying to look at here. When we're, when we're looking at this term, and now you start to see it more and more often, we started talking about IRR, geez, probably a year ago, year and a half ago, because I knew that providers would be going down the path of determining their returns based on home price appreciation. And so, but now you see this IRR more, more prevalent. So IRR is the way that you calculate your return on investment when you're, when you're, when you're including things like home price appreciation. So with home price appreciation, that imply, if you're counting that as a return on your investment, IRR is just another word for return on investment. So I'm going to say the same thing, right? When you're counting home price appreciation as a return on your investment, there has to be a sale of the property for it to hit your bank account. I mean, technically you could refinance, but we're going to keep it simple here. There has to be a sale. That's how vast majority of people would recoup the money they earn from home price appreciation. Well, when you start to look at all these providers now, they're very big now on including home price appreciation in their numbers to jack up their expected return on investment. But what they do not include is any of the costs that will come along with selling the property. And that's the only way that the majority of the time that you have a home a, a property, that's the only way you're going to recoup this home price appreciation. So it's just flat out not accurate to not include selling, holding, and closing costs. And to be specific, selling, holding, and closing costs, your, your selling costs are like 6% you know, commissions to pay your real estate agent to sell the house. That's the typical way people still sell their houses, right? Holding costs would be while the home is being marketed to be sold, you've got costs along the way, call that about 2% of costs. And then closing costs on the sales side as well. You have a couple percent there as well. So all in all, that's about a 10% haircut off of the sales price that you're selling the house for. And what I did is I just took one of the return on investment calculations for a different provider out here. And you look here, there are, there, there's a whole lot of appreciation that they count on here, but there is nothing as a line item for costs, right? And these costs should be something like $18,000, $20,000 should be a cost here that would really slam the returns that they would be uh, presenting. Got it. This takes me to kind of when we do the Thursday guest investor segments that you're always kind of like building that in and you subtract that out. And even though, you know, like you did mine, I had only owned my properties for like a year, you still took out closing costs and, you know, happily, I, my homes had appreciated enough where I still had an amazing return. But that's the thing, right? Like if you're going to look at this thing and include it based on what you can sell it for at a certain day, which is your IRR, then you need to, on that day, take out this like 10% haircut for closing costs. That's that's how you catch a level four trickster, right? Absolutely. All right. Well, Miguel Angel has a question that says, are, JW, are JWB including in this number when selling the inflation rate? Are we including when, I'm not sure I 100% understand. I, I, I'm going to assume that Miguel is asking about inflation profiting. 
I'm going to go down that direction, Miguel Angel. If, if that's not the way, let me know. But inflation profiting is basically looking at the, the amount that you're profiting from keeping your debt locked in at a certain rate. And the fact that as inflation happens, it gets easier and easier to pay that debt down in, in future years. You might, simple calculation would be like, you know, if inflation is 3% each year and your costs are held constant, that's like kind of earning like a 3% return each year. We do not include that. I, I, you know, I talk about it in concept with all of us here. It's quite complex when you're actually trying to build into a return on investment calculation. So we, we, our returns do not include inflation profiting. I haven't seen inflation profiting, profiting in any of these other evaluations that I've, I've done a deep dive on as well. It's, I think it's just something that's good to understand in concept. It is real, but it's, it's probably too complex to really kind of put an evaluation and get, get the benefit out of it. Got it. All right. GC. So are we missing anything on number four outside of this idea that if they are giving you an IRR, they're telling you a return on investment based on you selling your home on a certain date, you need to look for, do they have these selling, holding and closing costs? And you're going to be looking at like a 10% haircut on sales price. Anything else there? Nope. You got it. All right. Level four tricksters. You've been put on notice. Now we're moving on to DEFCON 5 tricksterishness. Where is home price appreciation? GC, what do we need to know? Oh man, this is this is the 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 most impactful one. This is just abomination, is what I'm gonna say. Because I've been abomination in for 17 years. I have been you know dedicated to understanding this asset class and to you know helping clients buy this these rental properties. And I know that up until like a year ago, none of these other providers out there actually included home price appreciation in any of their evaluations, right? It was all just cash flow, cash flow, cash flow for them. Cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. Well, what's happened is now that cash flows are diminishing, which we openly talk about, and it still means that rental property investing is better than other asset classes. But let's be real, cash flows are diminishing. Now, not only do these other providers include home price appreciation in their evaluations, they've gone bonkers as to what their actual home price appreciation rates are in their in their areas. So I just, I took, again, these are real numbers right now being pushed and promoted for active properties currently from other turnkey providers. And I went and I looked at what do they estimate for uh, different markets out there for their home price appreciation. So that's this first top box here. The Birmingham market, their estimated home price appreciation is 5% a year. Well, I know what the actual data shows going back since 1982. I've pulled this for Jacksonville and I pulled it for the other markets. Jacksonville's home price appreciation average per year is much higher. It's 25% higher than all of these other comparable cash flow markets. And so I actually went and pulled it for Birmingham and guess what? It's not 5%. It's 3.8%. I pulled it for Dallas, which they estimated at 7% per year. I haven't seen a market out there at 7% per year on average since 1982. So Dallas's actual HPA per year uh, on average is 3.9%, nowhere close to 7%. And Memphis, again, it's not 5%, it's 3.6%. So this is a convenient use of what we've seen recently, which has been higher than normal home price appreciation, but that's not the way this thing works. And when you start to get into to determining the expected return on investment, including home price appreciation, a half percent higher than reality has a huge impact on your returns. 1% higher than reality has an enormous impact on your returns. What's that? 3.1% 
higher in Dallas than reality is like gargantuan, like off the charts, way over inflating returns because it's history would not show any conclusion that a 7% home price appreciation rate in Dallas is sustainable over the next market cycle. Got it. I mean, they're infl- they're inflating their their home price appreciation by more than what Cleveland's actual home price appreciation is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, GC, if we're if we're going to catch a DEFCON five level tricksterish person, and they are showing us these home price appreciation numbers, what is what are the questions that we have to ask here? How do we defend ourselves? Ask them how did you get that estimated home price appreciation rate? Can you show me what your data? says over the next 10 to 20 year cycle. Got it. So 10 to 20 year cycles, you don't want the last three years. You don't want the last five years. You want normalized home price appreciation over the long term, And then you can extrapolate that for 20%. Because as we have learned, you can only count on home price appreciation if you're thinking about it in a full market cycle. Exactly. Right. That's really critical because the same provider that's suggesting five to 7% home price appreciation per year doesn't include any costs to, to actually sell that property as well. So there's kind of like double dipping on inflating these values here. Right. And again, you don't count on home price appreciation one year to the next. You count it in totality over a full market cycle, but that's not the way they want you to think here, apparently, with this provider. So, yeah. Well, there's, there's more too. So okay. go ahead, man. I, I'll I'll wait patiently. I was just going to say, Pedro Nasiaciano, he uh, just joined us from Jersey. Good to have you, Pedro. Better late than never. And he took my next question, which was, what about the home price appreciation from other Jacksonville providers that aren't JWB? Have you seen someone thrown out there like 20% or something crazy? You know, I didn't look at other Jacksonville providers here. Um, there's really not a whole lot of other providers that are, that are even turnkey companies in Jacksonville, and there's not another one that's vertically integrated. So I, you know, there's, you know, I haven't really seen their their valuations. It's something I should I should look into though. I kind of pay more attention to the other markets out there. Yeah, you kind of are the category king of Jacksonville, so you don't really have to punch down that way. That being said, we know the answer to that exam. If you are getting an estimate from another Jacksonville provider. You should expect it to say 4.6% home price appreciation because that is the normalized appreciation over the last 20 years. And it's better than all these other clowny ass markets. So, geez, sorry, sorry. I don't know what got into me there. All right, GC, what, what, what else did you have to say there? So, it's not just the overinflated home price appreciation percentages. This is really critical. All right. I need us to put our thinking caps on here. All right. All right. So, the reason that I put this thing down here at the bottom, this is your return on investment or your IRR calculation over a 10-year period, okay? And look at what I highlighted here, which is the appreciation line, okay? So when you're calculating a return on investment over a 10-year hold, it is not accurate to count on home price appreciation happening every single year. Because what what matters when you're calculating this return on investment over a 10-year hold is when does money hit the bank account? So it's not just the amount, it's the timing of when it hits your return on investment calculation. Okay. It is home price appreciation doesn't work this way where you deposit in your bank account every year. What happens is you hold on for 10 or 20 years. And after a certain period of time, you sell the property, right? And then you get this big pile of money that we call home price appreciation. Well, so the accurate way to reflect this on an internal rate of return or return on investment calculation is to wait till year, call it 10 
and put a big lump sum of money coming in. And this may not seem like this is a big differentiation, but when you start to analyze your return on investment calculation, the timing of the money coming in is very impactful. So what you see here is every year they're counting on six, seven, nine, $10,000 coming in. That is a way to artificially bump up returns on investment. It should mm. not happen year zero, years one through nine. You should have a big lump sum in year 10 for that total amount. And that would really de depress what their expected returns would be. Got it. So I was explaining it wrong when you had your technical difficulties. It's not this, it's the idea that you're not receiving home price appreciation in years one through nine. It all has to come in year 10. And therefore, that's going to change the way that the whole thing looks for you, cash flow wise and return wise and IRR wise, when you actually take a look at it. Exactly. And I'm going to show you the impact of that here in just a second. Let's do it, GC. I know that this was all these DEF CON levels one through five of tricksterishness have all been their way. I know that. JWB vertically integrated, you operate completely different, plus moral standards, because I know you personally. Should we get into your way or, or, or the right way? Is that what's coming up next here? Sure. You know what? Listen, you know, I'm passionate about this, but I would not take this into a moral moral place. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to go there. I just want to go like, literally, what is the right way to calculate something? Okay. Like, does this thing have a cost? Then let's put it in right? What is the generally accepted way to reflect a return on investment? The morality of it all, I'm, I'm not going to play that game, right? Okay. But just literally, should it be there or not? I think that's the standard we hold everybody to. All right. Talk us through these last couple of slides, you see. Yeah. So here's this example of this property. Again, a real life property that, you know, I think it's very appealing when you look at the evaluation, the way that this provider presents it, right? It's a purchase price of 130000 Like how cool would it be to have $130,000 property in Jacksonville, right? This one happens to be in Oklahoma City. Then you look and you're just like, oh, cash flow. Okay, cool. There's $95 a month in cash flow. Wow. Listen, that's close to 100. That's really, that's really good. That's that's more than the property in Jacksonville is, right? Jacksonville's cash flow is like $25, $50 a month, something to be positive, but nothing, nothing's going to change your life. Well, so you're like $100 a month. You're like, okay, cool. And then you look at your return on investment. You're like, oh man, 29% returns. Man, that sounds awesome. I could turn my money over every three years. Like, oh, cool. Listen, I bet even if they were just a little bit aggressive in some places, Maybe, maybe it's really a 20% return. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. And you start to convince yourself of these things. But au contraire, mon frere, we're going to take a look at what the real, real numbers actually dictate when you when you capitalize on all the costs. Were you talking to uh, Anonymous Setsende there? Oh, oh, au contraire, mon frere. <laughs> so I broke down their way of estimating on their property. And then I ran it through JWB's property evaluation to calculate what we would estimate that same property to show. And I listed here all of the things that they do not include. And, and there's actually one thing that we include that they don't. So I wanted to show that too. But does this provider include closing costs? No, we do. What is their expected interest rate? Their expected interest rate is five and a quarter percent. Still way aggressive. Uh, JWBs is conservative, but I know that we can hit this. And we're at 6%. Do, what do they expect for their down payment percentage? Theirs is way more aggressive, 25% down with a lower interest rate. Hard to do. I doubt that they're actually able to do that. For JWB's property valuations, we expect 30%. So again, conservative is what we're looking at when, ex when expecting interest rates. Probably you want me to keep going there. Any questions on that? 
Yeah, no, I think this is pretty good. Is there anything to Miguel? What Miguel Angel is saying here? So, so basically, you are you're you're going through this thing, and you are showing how JWB adds extra, you know, heft and numbers. How not extra, like the right amount of costs into all these different things. Like some completely omit it, some underestimate the the cost of it. The JWB property eval is actually putting all these things in there. And therefore, what I'm hearing from what you're saying is like, A, people can fall in love with this other number, which then pegs their, their thinking to like, this is what the market should be bringing me and 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 whatnot if you're comparing it one-to-one with a JWB property eval. But I think the more important thing out there is if this is happening at scale, right? Like, let's say I'm not somebody that's comparing a property to versus somebody that's showing this to me in Memphis or a JWB property. I think I think what what's landing on me is that if this stuff is happening at scale, then the average person that's like, you know, what kind of experience should I should should I expect from a from a rental property? They're just not getting good advice overall when all this stuff is happening so much everywhere. Exactly. We are the weird ones at JWB. The, their way is the way that every other provider presents their return on investment. Like we're the weird ones. We know that we're we're cool with that. Like I, it helps me know because it helps me know that I can actually perform to hit these numbers because I have clients ten years, twenty years down the road that still look at those same numbers I told them day one when they bought it, and they're like, "Hey, Greg, how are we doing?" Not no other provider does that. And yeah, so I, I I think that the vast majority of people are uninformed and flat out duped when it comes to property valuations. There's just no other way to say it. Got it. So at the end of the day, if I was to ask you a question, how do I catch a trickster on ROI world? You ask them, are closing costs included? Is my expected interest rate correct? Is my expected down payment percentage included? Does it include tax savings in your IRR? Does expected appreciation percent per year? Is it historically accurate or is this just what's been going on in the last couple of days? Are we including maintenance cost each year as opposed to just turnover years? What is the maintenance cost percentage and making sure that that's accurate and it and it shouldn't be, you know, it should be somewhere around like a 7.5%. Are selling, holding, and closing costs included when you are exiting the property and that's the IRR calculation that they're giving you? Are you counting appreciation in IRR every year as opposed to when you actually sell the property? And is expected vacancy cost percentage how when 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 they actually like put it in and 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 whatnot, right? Like that's basically the list. That would be a cool like top 10 question to ask for your your before you buy a turnkey rental property. Absolutely. There you go, man. We are at a, a little bit over GC. We got a couple of questions. I know we got a couple more slides. Do you want to go through these? Yeah, slides? let's do the grand finale and then let's jump into those questions. I'm happy to hang for as long as as long as you guys are hanging with me. All right, let's do it. All right. So I took all of that good stuff and I took their way of presenting this same property in Oklahoma City. Their way told their investor who will purchase this that they're going to receive $95 a month in positive cash flow. JWB's estimate would be negative $105 a month, just using their numbers, but actually reflecting all the costs that come along. Their return on investment that they would advertise and are advertising right now is 29%. 
JWB's estimate, again, accounting for all the costs and actually using numbers based on their market, 6%. That's how you take a 29% estimate for return on investment and turn that into a 6%. That's exactly what is happening to a lot of investors out there. And that's why I'm so passionate about this. People need to know right off the bat that these 30%, 20%, 15% expected returns on investment are just flat out not accurate. Yeah. And again, this is not, I don't think that this is as relevant to the idea that somebody's going to go out there and look at an Oklahoma City property and then look at a JWB property and be like, oh, these guys are way better, right? Because if you're doing that, you're probably going to look into JWB and understand you're better. But I think I think what's what's landing on me is that this is why people talk trash about rental properties is because their experience is that they've bought it from someone that promised them 29% and they ended up getting 6%. Somebody that promised them $95 per month and they're getting negative $105 per month, right? I mean, that to me is the the really impactfulness of this call. A hundred percent, man. And why is it that way? It's because you're not working with a vertically integrated company that needs to be held accountable for the returns that they tell you that you're going to get. Like there's no way when you go and buy this property with this other provider and expect 29% returns after 10 years that you're going to be able to look back after 10 years and actually hit that number. It's just flat out not possible. And you know, that's that can really have negative consequences. And so, you know, I hope that's the big takeaway here is let's 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 have an objective way. Let's not have a double standard. Right? Let's not have a double standard within rental property investing. Let's not have a double standard outside of rental property investing with other asset classes as well, but you know, hopefully now everybody has more of the tools to ask the questions and you guys can use the same JWB property evaluation. All I did literally took the JWB property evaluation, plugged in their estimate for rents, you know, their price, you know, their taxes, their insurance. You guys can do the same thing and you'll come to the same conclusion. Love it. Love it. And I just think that this to me is a, a big shining moment of your core value of underpromising and over-delivering, right? Like if you're not, if you're not able to promise something that you can actually deliver on, you know, this is why the asset class has a black eye. This is why most people be like, oh, rental properties, yeah, not that good. Not as good as everybody promises, right? Is because this is happening en masse and this is the standard that we have to hold ourselves to. All right, let's jam through some of these questions real quick. GC, you ready? Love it. Miguel Angel asks, the question that comes now is how JWB compares with other providers in property selling prices. What do you think about that? We're more expensive than almost everybody. That's what you would expect for a market like Jacksonville, right? So you're comparing, like our sales prices are compared next to Cleveland or Memphis or or Oklahoma City, like we just saw. Those are all markets that have slow or no growth in typical real estate markets. And so, you know, the cool thing is now that we factor in home price appreciation over a full market cycle, now you're able to see why people choose Jacksonville. We have higher purchase prices here, right? We have higher rents and uh, and then other places as well. So that helps to offset that, right? We have slight, you know, I've always said we had slightly lower cash flows compared to this one in Oklahoma City. We have a lot higher cash flows. Negative 105 is what I would have estimated for this Oklahoma City property. So. Who knows? Our cash flows probably are right there and comparable with when you actually compare apples to apples. But the reason you choose Jacksonville is for positive cash flow and growth. It's all five profit centers. It's not that cash flow today is going to change your life because this $50 a month or even $100 a month in another market is not going to change your life. But when you buy an asset and let it grow for 10 years or 20 years, you're going to look in the future and that cash flow is going to change your life at some point, but you have to buy in the right market with the right team and let those five profit centers grow. 
GC, what about just pricing in Jacksonville? Like, how do you compare prices of the homes that you sell versus other Jacksonville providers? You know, I really haven't checked into the Jacksonville provider. It doesn't really come up. I mean, I think you said it well, right? We we kind of have a very strong foothold in the Jacksonville market. If somebody's going for a vertically integrated company, they're coming to JWB. I mean, the last time I looked at it, our properties are still more expensive than other providers in Jacksonville because we sell up market value. Other people don't have this experience that we are selling. They don't have the team to support it. And so other people will sell at a discount to market value. And you know what happens is their clients generally end up paying more in the long run and having lower returns than if they would have paid market value and gone with JWB and had this experience in this team. Got it. Okay. Eddie Harris asks, hey, Greg, the included tax savings in IRR is not appropriate for non-recourse, correct? Correct, Eddie. That's uh, that's a really good point. Of course, we don't include that for non-recourse either. But when you are buying a property with non-recourse financing, it is assumed that you're buying it in a retirement account. And in a retirement account, you don't get additional tax savings because you already have the tax savings because it's a retirement account. It's either tax deferred or tax free. So it wouldn't be correct to add additional tax savings for rental properties. So you should not be including tax savings uh, if you are purchasing a non-recourse property. All right. Carrie Kinsolving asked the question, do you ever do cost segregation on a residence to get accelerated depreciation for tax purposes? Carrie, great question. Cost segregation is something that we have looked into in the past. It sounds like a great idea. We do not do it for individual properties that we own because the amount of cost that it generally takes in terms of paying that company to do this cost segregation doesn't equate to the savings you would get from the accelerated depreciation is what we found on an individual basis. This is why you mainly see it in multifamily apartment complexes, commercial properties for sure. That's where the cost that you you would incur to do the cost segregation is worth it from a tax savings perspective. Got it. Lee Bishop asks, it sounds like even though these other companies are turnkey providers, they are not taking responsibility for your investing success. And that is why we work with JWB. Who wants us to be successful and that in turn keeps JWB successful? I guess that's not a question. I love it though. We'll take more questions like that. And Lee, you're right. And just imagine if all these other providers showed up twice a week to break down their evaluations. How many, man, you guys would just have so many questions for them, right? Isn't it cool that we get to together? It make you guys make me better. You make JWB better. Like this transparency, Pablo, that you you told me about two and a half years ago of putting it, putting us on a show to do this. I just think it, it makes us all better. So thank you. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Pablo. Yeah, yeah. Bring it on, tricksters. I want to see you on a show. Leslie Wilson, final question. Why is JWB buying other property management companies? I love that question, Leslie. You know, we are, we want to be around and thriving for market cycle after market cycle at JWB. We are long-term thinkers. And we have always been long-term thinkers. And one of the things we learned pretty early on is that. The real estate market will change at some point. We survived and have thrived after the Great Recession, and we are we survived the pandemic. We have seen outsized home price appreciation, rent price appreciation over the last two years. And I know as I look into my crystal ball for the next 10 or 20 years, the market will change again. And the, the best thing that we can do is to protect our number one resource here, which is our team. And in most real estate companies, they are beholden to what the market throws at them. And unfortunately, what happens is when the market becomes harder to sell properties or build properties, builders cut their staff. Real estate companies cut their staff. 
We believe that our team is the number one resource that we have. That's the reason that you all invest with us. And that's what differentiates us. So if we're going to protect the team, we need to build a counter cyclical business, a business that can survive whatever market cycle comes our way. Building up property management is critical to that. And that's why you've seen us go from about 1,500 properties under management to almost 5,000 properties under management over the last few years. It's because we knew the market was going to change at some point. And you know, as the market continues to change, it is incredibly powerful to have a, a property management company that has, call it, you know, 4,000, 5,000 individual owners paying you, you know, hundred bucks a month. It creates great stability for your business so that you can make sure that you protect your number one asset, which is our team. And it allows us to be in a position of strength. So as a part of that, we are building our property management company organically and selling more properties and doing the property management for all of you out there. So we love that. In addition, when we see the right opportunity, we're going we're gonna to acquire a property management company as well. And so we've acquired four of those over the last two, two and a half years or so. That GC, by the way, this is why I love being a part of the show, because that's a masterclass in business. Build a counter cyclical business with recurring revenue that ensures stability so that you can keep your team and make that your competitive advantage. There is nothing I believe in more. And there's nothing that, you know, like I, outside of becoming personally an investor, this is why this show has affected my life so much, right? These business concepts of long-term thinking, investing in culture, investing in competitive advantages, and really just making that be driven by this team approach is something that has forever changed my life, GC. Raj has a question about rental occupancy rates. Madison, I'm going to ask you to answer that in the chat because I have to check out of this Airbnb in the next 15 minutes. So I cannot <laughs> I cannot keep this thing going. GC, this was awesome. We had 50 plus people on this on the show today. You, you said it, man. You said that this topic was going to crush. I think you crushed it on this really, really informative top five ROI lies of what we, you know, what you got to look out for to not get hoodwinked by those rental property tricksters out there that have given this asset class a bad reputation. I'm going to go over them again. Number one, maintenance and vacancy costs. You got to make sure that they're, that they're there. Two, tenant placement fees. Three, interest rates, financing terms, and closing costs. Four, selling, holding, and closing costs. And five, home price appreciation. Thank you to the community for being here for over an hour today. This was an incredible, incredible experience. If you're listening on the podcast and you made it through the glitch with where GC went dark there, actually, you know, we're going to edit that out, but I really do appreciate everybody that's still here, made it through the glitch of me just yammering on, trying to trying to be you, which is impossible. Just really means the world to us that you hang out with us for an hour plus on a Tuesday. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, GC. I'll give you last words. I just love you guys. I love this platform. It's just, you know, sometimes you have this, this feeling when you're, when you're doing something working or maybe playing a sport or doing a craft or whatever it is, you know, that, that feels your bucket and you're just like, man, I just love what I do. That's, that's what I, I feel when I'm on the show with you guys. And with a topic like this too, I, you know, I'm just, it's just, it's just really a blessing to be able to spend this time with all of you here today. So appreciate you guys. Can't wait for Thursday. All right. And now, you know, if you want to have a good experience in this asset class and you want to catch a trickster in their own game, you just can't think like an average investor. See you Thursday. See you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you listening to this podcast. Sending one of these episodes to a buddy or dropping us a review would be awesome. But what I really want you to do is go to nyais.com, register and join us live on a Tuesday or Thursday. Seriously, 
when are you going to do it? When are you going to be the next Lee, the next Jen, the next Nadim, the next Ken, the next Marilyn Cotterman from Huamasasa, Florida, the next Hervé Francois, so I can butcher your name for a while and then become your buddy, the next Bill Shields to come up with a hilarious new way to introduce yourself every time I do the roll call. You get the point. We got a bunch of amazing folks. We want you to be a part of it. Join us live on the show. Go to nyais.com register join us at least one tuesday or one thursday a month at 12 30 i promise it's as fun as it sounds hope to see you on the show i promise you will not be treated like an average investor